Thank you for tuning in to the Bill Bradley Collective, a weekly podcast located at the intersection of sports and politics. With your hosts, Andrew, Ed, and Zach. Welcome back to the Bill Bradley Collective, where we are once again socially distancing in Zach's backyard. Uh, So you will hear the sounds of beautiful New London, Connecticut in the background. New London, Connecticut, not just the Paris of southeastern Connecticut, but the home of A.J. Dillon. And Brandon, I think you have something to say about this. Yeah, I just uh, wanted to definitely start the podcast to give a shout out to my uh, team, the Green Bay Packers, with the uh, 62nd pick in the 2020 NFL Draft. They selected New London's own A.J. Dillon. Uh, So happy to have him on the team, happy to have a new running back and uh, a, a good young player. I also wanted to just touch on this week the enjoyment of things that we get out of COVID-19 and uh, the draft's happening right now and the last few days have been really great uh, being able to see into the homes of all the NFL coaches that keep it modest and the uh, agents that keep it lavish and uh, it's just been a really good day to kind of look into those lives and not have everybody in their war rooms and have them in their own their own little private rooms. What did you guys think about uh, watching the draft and getting to see into everybody's lives? Uh, I, I was extremely jealous of Cliff Kingsbury, who just looks like he's living his best life out in Arizona. Just he's he's like loafers, just beautiful background. Uh, compare that to Belichick, who seemed almost disinterested in being a part of it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I have to admit, I did not watch the NFL draft. My TV arrived yesterday. I had not owned a TV. It arrived. I got a smart TV. I could not figure out, I could figure out how to get everything to work except the actual TV part where like you turn on a cable channel. So I have not seen it yet, but I, uh, I did follow it pretty closely on the internet and, uh, the draft, the draft. Definitely have been enjoying it. Um, it's a stacked class. There's just, I, in my mind, um, there's just a lot of like a lot of high impact players, um, across the board. I'm hopeful watching this. It's, it's such a teaser for, for football and for lives in the return of like live sports. Um, just open for the best. I'm going to begin with my rant today. Um, and part of this is personal. One of my best friends is Mike Berry. He's the president of the Judicial Professional Employee Union, which is a public uh, sector union in Connecticut. And one of his members, who was 32 years old, had a obviously young wife, two small children. One was cerebral palsy, who, who uh, has bills of around $200,000 a year. Uh, passed away from the COVID-19 virus. And we all know people who are really suffering from this. And all of the talk of reopening the economy has really kind of worn on my nerves, especially since that, and especially since that goddamn usurper, Brian Kemp, who would never have won if he didn't control who voted. He took down a great candidate, by a tiny margin after making sure that almost all of her voters couldn't actually vote. This bastard reopens the economy in Georgia where they're having 2.5% increases per day in cases and hospitalizations and 2% in deaths. I think this is so premature, which is why it bothers me to hear the NBA talking about it. You know, we were just talking before the, before we came on that, I was really excited about this year's playoffs because I thought that the last two rounds, a Kawhi LeBron and then one of them against Giannis could create a scenario for the first time in 15 years that LeBron James might not be widely considered the best player ever, I mean, in, in, in the league. But if he won, I think it's almost impossible to not make him the best player ever. 
I know Bill Simmons has him third after Bill Russell, but sweet Jesus. Bill Russell played in a league where he played against a lot of six eight white guys. Um, you know, could he guard guys out on the perimeter? No. Could he score? He couldn't score then. So, no, he's not one of the best three, three players who ever lived. But the NBA needs to, I think, take a lead socially, which they're the only league that could do this, and say, you know what? We care more about the safety of our players and of our fans and of our staffs than we do about making more money because we're all billionaires and millionaires, and we don't need to make more money. We need to be safe. And if they made that statement, it would undo all kinds of damage. And I wish they would, and I wish the press would stop covering it as though the NBA may well come back and even play a few regular season games. I listened to Zach Lowe, who I love, um, the other day, and or yesterday, and he was talking about, you know, even if we come back for five regular season games, they're not playing five regular season games. Best case scenario, they play a 16-game NCAA Sweet 16 tournament, one game a day, and at the end, you know, you take a break, and then the championship game is played on a Monday night or something. I don't know. Even that's too much. I think it's time for us to say, you know what, while this is going on, there are things more important than sports. And it's time for the NBA to be the league that says that because no other league would say it. You know, I talked about the NBA and the playoff structure, I think, a few weeks ago. And, and as things have gotten worse, their their plans and their ideas being kicked around are just more and more ludicrous uh, and more and more just kind of offensive to the people who are fighting, you know, to, pr- to protect us and the people who are suffering through it. Um, I mean, I think the NBA doing that, the, the minuscule amount that they have to care about their staff and their workers, especially the low-paid ones, the staff that aren't the ones getting hundreds of thousands of dollars but would have to actually have to operate the stadiums, it's just disappointing, especially because the NBA, you know, we've talked about this, is, is a more socially activist league. And I think through all this, you know, what it has shown, you know, as, as you watch on news, people talking about reopening the economy is just, you know, these job creators that, that we've been pumping up for the last 30 years as being the saviors of our economy. Like, no, they're parasites. And this is what happens in capitalism is parasites just try to find a new host. And that host is about reopening the economy. And it's bullshit. And it's a shame that we allow it. Unlike the frivolous side, I, I totally agree that this NBA season before all of this was headed towards this like crescendo moment in like late May, June um, with what, I mean, the consequences of like a LeBron Giannis showdown, I I think would be, would loom large. We're not going to get that and we shouldn't get it because there's a lot more pressing things to be concerned about. I think the NBA is, I think they're trying to delicately straddle this line of being responsible, but also trying to like give people some hope that, like, hey, we'll get through this. Hey, we have a plan. Hey, we, you, know, you were trying to think of maybe a month, two months from now being back to, you know, somewhat normalcy when it's, it's irresponsible. It's, it's, there's, there's bigger things than, than an epic NBA Finals, uh, human life being first and foremost. So I mentioned Brian Kemp, who's in the running for America's Worst Governors. But Florida's in the running, too. And, uh, Andrew, you had something to say about that. Kemp has some pretty stiff competition in that, in that category. Um, so while, while we're on the topic of, you know, essential reopening the economy and essential business versus non-essential business, Ron DeSantis, total Trump flunky, stooly, um, ass kisser, whatever, whatever you want to call him, decreed that sports 
are considered in his state, the state of Florida, to be an essential business. And what this has done is you've got Vince McMahon and the WWE doing live tapings, um, which I'm not going to get into, but that's that sentence is inherently problematic. Um, and you've got the UFC uh, are expected to make their triumphant return in May in Jacksonville. Uh, we've been down that road too. Uh, but there's also a little golf match, a little golf exhibition uh, that's going to come our way at the end of May featuring Tiger Woods and amateur golfer Peyton Manning versus Phil Mickelson and amateur golfer Tom Brady. When I think like of essential business, you know, you think of healthcare workers and you think of pharmacies and you think of grocery stores and I don't think of four of the richest athletes in the history of the Western world uh, playing golf in front of no people. I don't consider that essential. I don't know if I'm crazy. Am I, am I off pace with that? I don't think so. Why is this happening? I, I, and, I, and I get that there is a thirst for, for some sports, for live sports, but what kind of message does, does this send? I, I, I don't like it. I think it's in bad taste. I agree. I mean, the essential business in Florida, I mean, there's no reason. I mean, we, we watch AW, we watch WWE. They're not essential businesses. They, they're just something. We, they're entertainment. They're fun. They're not essential. Healthcare workers are essential. Um, and the reason why, I mean, why is this happening is as hungry as we are for content, networks are just as hungry, if not hungrier, for profits and money. And just as like I said in the last one, I mean, this is what capitalism produces and this is what our economic system produces. The second anyone takes a hit in the profit, the second billionaires have to scrub a nickel, they will do everything they can to make that money back and to have as much profit and, you know, damn the expense, damn the human toll. So, yeah. It's bad. It's all bad. Uh, so, Zach, one thing that wasn't 100% bad was the NFL draft. Yeah, a little change of gear and a little change of gear for me here since typically I'm not very uplifting in these uh, rants. But uh, I wanted to start off by just saying, you know, today was the draft. Yesterday's the draft. Uh, the, the draft started Thursday night. One of the things that, that is great about sports and the way to practice it responsibly, I think, is the way the draft has done it. They're doing it all virtual. Um but it's allowed people that are sports fans and, and don't need to get together in a crowd of 100 because that's dangerous. It's allowed us all like watch it virtually over Zoom. And, uh, and I think that that's a real positive in like, we can have sports and sporting events and be it responsible and still enjoy it together. And I think it was just like a testament to the, the draft going forward and, and doing it the right way virtually for all of us to be able to like have that moment of, of you know, when AJ Dillon got drafted, all of us on the Zoom like went crazy and like we started cheering and, and it was just like the only difference was we weren't in my house. You know, like that's the only difference. But then again, something did piss me off at the draft, so I gotta talk about that. Which is Bud Light uh, and the NFL partnered up to do a hashtag boo the commish. And they were gonna donate money for every hashtag or something like that. One of the great joys we have in watching sports is just booing the commissioner. We all, we all do it. It doesn't matter if we like them or not. We boo them. And instead, they're doing this feel-good PR stunt where they're, oh, if you donate or if you hashtag, we'll give a dollar or something. The NFL in 2018 made $8 billion. Bud Light made $1.8 billion next year. You know what would do a hell of a lot more than fucking donating of our tweets? Donate your own fucking money. You have a billion dollars. They can't. They could write a check for ten million dollars and not even notice it. And instead, they have to like do this PR stunt. Uh, and it's just, you know, monetizing COVID and our hatred of of the commissioner. And it just rubbed me the wrong way. 
I would say that the booing of the commissioner, and, and I don't, I wouldn't boo every commissioner. I would boo Roger Goodell because he sucks at his job. <laughs> yes. Just like the woman when you were young who at, at Duchess served us cold fries like four weeks in a row. And I just had to like kind of boo her because like it's not that hard to keep the fries hot. But she doesn't make $44 million a year. She makes twenty-one five with no benefits. We boo Goodell because Goodell sucks. It's not ironic. It's actual. And it reminds me of Trump being on Saturday Night Live. Like yes. it's, it's the, we want it both ways. We want to be edgy, but not really edgy. We want everyone in on the joke. And if everyone's on, in on the joke, it's like Dan Crenshaw going on. And Dan mm-hmm. Crenshaw is a fucking monster. I don't care if he has one eye. Cyclops had one eye. He was a monster too. And, you know, that didn't make him a better person. I Obviously, I didn't sacrifice an eye during the war, and, and so I respect him for the decision he made. I don't respect him for the human being he is. He's a goddamn monster. And somehow he gets to be in on the joke, and then there's no joke. It's a corporate union in terms of humor. And so... Bud Light's a terrible beer. The NFL's a terrible corporation. I know you guys are drinking Bud Light. It's no, we're drinking ter- Miller. Oh, right. But I mean, I, I'm, Bud Light's I'm the personally rotation. drinking Bud Light right, myself. Yeah. It's yeah. Still, it's Guilty as st- charged. It's still a terrible beer. And You're, you're not wrong. <laughs> it's, a, it's a quantity over quality argument. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right. And, and uh, I'm older. I can afford to drink more good beers than you guys can. I, I get that. But... Um, and also, I've made my life choices, and I'm going with this. Zach, you, Zach, you have no expectation of inheriting any money from me. So that's <laughs> and, and for a point of clarification, because I, I realized this promotion when they were doing it, too, and I just took it as a big fuck you to the fans. Like, I, I believe the promotions, the NFL and Bud Light, are matching all the donations of all of the fans. So if you donate, they will match your money, which is the NFL and Bud Light saying, fuck you, the two of us have more money than all of you could dream of. We can match it, and it's not going to affect us. It's a huge PR stunt. They spit more on advertising than they will on people's donations. We have so much money and power, you couldn't challenge us on donating enough. credit for it. Like, Stop and Shop, which is a local grocery store here in Connecticut, and it's a unionized grocery store, and, and, and so God bless them. That's why I shop there. But they take credit for all of the donations their customers make. Like, they write this big check and put it out, and they haven't given a goddamn dollar. They've simply collected it from poor suckers like me who they say, well, you contribute $2 to kids with cancer. It's like, yeah, of course. Like, like, what am I? Of course I will. Of course I will. I'm going to contribute $2 to kids with cancer because my kids don't have cancer. And so there's your $2. And then Stop and Shop holds up the big check. It gets all like the credit. Michael all Scott, the credit. Like Michael Scott in the office. And it's... <laughs> You know what? Fuck everybody. Um, <laughs> no, I don't follow that. To, to, but to the last part of what Zach was saying, so in Los Angeles, you've got to try and raise money in the wake of coronavirus. Um, you've got Magic Johnson. You know, giving he's he's they're going to auction off courtside seats with him to a Lakers game, and Doc Rivers is going to let somebody be like an assistant coach with him for a day, and the Dodgers are going to give up Dodger Stadium for your your like beer league softball game. They're like auctioning these off, and all the proceeds are going to go to COVID relief. Lakers games, um, you know, communal softball games, Clippers games, like, are, do we know if any of these, if these things are going to happen? Like, why don't the Dodgers and the Clippers and the Lakers just donate some fucking money 
instead of putting it up for auction and, and to what you're saying like they're going to be the ones that get credit for this when it's the people that are auctioning on these experiences that they might never actually fucking experience in the first place like well, <laughs> just give just Give some money. And they're spending like, more money telling you that they're doing exactly. it than they're actually doing doing it. Can I do my Can I do my weekly anti Bill Simmons rant? <laughs> Please, I love these. Because Bill Simmons and cousin Sal, who's great, cousin Sal, I do not find problematic. Um, <laughs> I, feel, I feel guilty about liking liking Bill Simmons, but anyway, Bill Same. Simmons auctioned off an opportunity to do guess the lines with him and cousin Sal. Uh. And Bill Simmons kept saying, we raised $1.2 million. No, some guy gave $1.2 million. Like, that's what happened. The fact that he gave it to sit with you strikes me as a poor decision. That He'd just be better off doing it. And Bill Simmons takes credit for it. Bill Simmons mentions every goddamn podcast that he, he donated $100,000 to um, Central... Central World Kitchen? Yeah. I don't think Central Food Kitchen. Yeah. And he mentions it every time because he he's worth a couple hundred million dollars. It's like me giving up twenty five bucks and then putting out on this podcast. You know, I just gave twenty five dollars to Roland Lamar who's running for a state this you know, state senate seat. You did brag about the two dollars. You, but you'd be open <laughs> with that every every week. Week. kids with cancer. <laughs> yeah. You open with that bit every week. I donated this this time, and that's what you do every week. For the rest of the, this podcast's livelihood. Yes. Right, right. right. I'm going to yeah. just talk about how much I donated to Roland Lamar, <laughs> believing that our hundreds of listeners will end up giving Roland Lamar more money than he can conceivably spend <laughs> as a white guy representing an all-black district in New Haven. Yes. <laughs> so speaking of white guys, minority hires, politics, and money, uh, we will be right back to talk about the Rooney Rule and its abject failure. In a world where everyone's on and no one's unplugged. Where being busy is a badge of honor. Where the race from the gym to the office to the carpool and to the kitchen is unrelenting. When your spouse asks, what should we do for dinner? And your boss demands, I need this ASAP every single day. And silence and solitude is only achieved when your phone battery dies. We bring you a new kind of hero. Nothing. Yes, nothing. Just nothing. Nada. No phone, no Netflix, no cooking, no laundry, no Snapchat, no scrolling, no swiping left or right. Nothing is here to save you. Coming to a quiet space near you this February. So uh, we were talking about the draft, and one of the things that's been pointed out in the draft is that as people go, as a draft went from not just war rooms, but to just the actual people making the decision, that literally everyone making the decision was white. And that brings us back to the Rooney rule. So aren't Rooney the second who joins the list of famous juniors like Donald Trump Jr., <laughs> pointed out that they changed the rules for the Rooney Rule so that they must interview at least one diverse candidate from Career Development Advisory Panel and a candidate not employed by the club. 
And this is supposed to help things. This was passed in 2018. But it hasn't helped anything at all. Um, there have been 20 openings in the last three years since this rule was passed. Three coaches of color have been hired. One of them was Ron Rivera, who was the coach of Carolina and is now the coach of Washington. So really two coaches of color have been hired. There are four total coaches of color in the NFL right now. Uh, Art Rooney Jr. said in an interview in January that they're off to a good start because one-third of the coaches were of color. With 32 teams, it's actually 13%. Um, so his ability to do math is doubtful. So the question is... That explained Roethlisberger's contract. Yeah, that explains Roethlisberger. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We'll give you $10 million for every rape accusation. Um <laughs> But is it time to rethink the Rooney rule? Is it inadequate? Is it designed to be inadequate? What is your feeling about where we are? Because clearly what we're doing is not working in the, as the NFL. It, I find it difficult because it's one of those situations where we know what the absence of this rule does. And the absence of this rule is, is we know it's there'd be four, there's four coaches of color right now in the NFL. There'd be four fewer most likely, in the NFL. Maybe one. Uh, the Steelers have a long history of hiring minority coaches, uh, even if Art Rooney is a jackass. Rooney, well, they have a long history of, re- well, of hiring. Well, has been a coach for 18 years. Yeah, they have a long <laughs> history of rehiring coaches. He was their first minority coach, yes. but they're going to just rehire him in perpetuity. But I think it, it, it comes down to, like, if you look at it from a term of, like, incremental change, like, yes, it has changed. But I think when it comes to a league that's 70% you know, African-American and coaches that are 13%, you know, coaches of color, I wouldn't be okay with getting rid of it, but I think there is there has to be something to build on it that makes it more equitable because right now we still have, you know, yeah, while it's incremental, that doesn't solve the structural problems. There are still overwhelmingly white GMs. There are still overwhelmingly white owners. The people making the calls, making the hires, still look the same as they did beforehand. Uh you don't want to talk about quotas, but it, it, there has to be something to bring a little more equity. I think getting rid of it, um, we know what that looks like, and, and that's worse. But it's more of like how do we build on it rather than how do we get rid of it. I view it the same as like the ACA. Do you get rid of the ACA to get Medicare for All? No, you build on it to get Medicare for All. You don't get rid of it. We know what the opposite looks like. It's a failure in that it, it, it just doesn't go far enough, deep enough. It doesn't go, it doesn't go high enough, I think would be the way yes. to say it. The first sort of modern wave of like of African-American hires are largely like really successful when you look at Dennis Green and Tony Dungy and Ray Rhodes and Tom Flores, who was the first. You would think in this this win first, win second, win third, like where you'd think these teams all prioritize at like a, oh, we just, just want to win. Just win, just win, baby, as a, somebody once said, Al Davis. You would think they would see that, hey, like African-Americans, they can, they, they can, they, they can coach, you know? And they can, obviously. But the problem is that doesn't lead to like a spike in like African American hires, you know? And it's and it's worse now than it's been if, uh, in, in a long time. The Rooney rule has to go higher. It has to go to the level of where the coaches are getting hired by upper management, GMs. That's where the rule, the, if there's going to be a sort of an addendum and a continuation and extension of the Rooney rule, it has to be in how teams hire their directors of like personnel and their GMs. You brought up something that I, I, 
I was thinking about uh, in my answer, but but you kind of brought it back at the forefront of my mind, which is you look at second chances. Like you mentioned, all those coaches, Dungy, Denny Green, these these African American coaches that got hired had success and are now largely out of the league. They got fired, didn't necessarily get a second chance. And you look at how many bad white coaches, like Jeff Fisher, was a coach in the NFL for like thirty years. And he went eight and eight every year, and he just kept getting hired versus an African-American coach who might go 10 and six or nine and seven and lose a job. And then now they're an offensive coordinator. I think if we were going to fix a Rooney rule, that would be a place to start about if it is the second go around for a coach, because it's always going to be a white coach, that they need to be valued or looked at less so than a African-American coach getting his first shot. Here's a perfect example. Jim Caldwell made the playoffs with the goddamn Detroit Lions and got fired after making the playoffs with the goddamn Detroit Lions. They brought in Mac Patricia, who has yet to finish 500 and who could coach for the rest of his life and the rest of his children's lives. I'm not sure he's capable of procreating, but if he is, the rest of their lives. And he will never make the playoffs because he's a terrible coach. And yet, Matt Patricia got more years than Jim Caldwell. So there is an organization, and and I like these brief asides. There is an organization that is dedicated to bringing in minority leadership positions in the NFL, and it's called the Fritz Pollard Alliance, which, I mean, I really wish it's the name of this podcast right now. (laughs) And the Fritz Pollard Alliance is named after Fritz Pollard, who was the first black player in the NFL. Well, he was one of the first two. And the first black coach in the NFL. Now, 1920 is a long time ago, but like Major League Baseball was Major League Baseball. We understood what it was. Fritz Pollard played for Akron, Milwaukee, Hammond, and Gilberton, which was an independent team that would play pro teams. There are no teams in Akron, Milwaukee, or Hammond. I don't even know where Hammond is. Fritz Pollard, though, was a running back and coach for these teams. He was born on January 27, 1894. He died May 11, 1986. Unfortunately, the NFL was not able to honor him as an NFL Hall of Fame inductee in any of the 92 years of his life but instead waited till 2005 when they were pretty sure all his kids were also dead, and then they named him to the Hall of Fame and then all patted themselves on the back for how great they are. And their issue is, frankly, that Roger Goodell, who works for the owners and is paid $44 million a year to work for the owners, while he claims it's a bad look for the league, will never do anything about it. There have been more black presidents of the of the United States than there have been of NFL teams. That's not true of the NBA. The NBA has a lot of black presidents. Michael Jordan seemingly can't get fired from being a president no matter how badly he does. The question is, where do you actually make change? And I think, realistically, that the Rooney Rule should extend to NFL presidents and more than the Rooney rule, that at some point the commissioner should be able to walk, step in the way David Stern did with the Chris Paul trade and say, yeah, that guy's not going to be the president of the league. Or Adam Silver did with Don 
uh, Don Sterling. So, yeah, we're not doing that. Uh, you're going to have to pick somebody else because we know the union isn't strong enough to do it. Well, first of all, hey, they made Fritz Pollard an unlockable player and I believe, the 2009 and 2010 versions of their Madden football game. So that should just, like, make everything kosher, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's, hey, yeah that is paying. Everybody's still playing that, that game. That is paying yeah. due diligence his to family, the legacy his of Fritz family, Pollard. His family seeing one cent per <clears throat> gameplay. He was 5'9 like, and, and weighed 165 pounds. He's injured on the first play. <laughs> he's, like, the first. He, he goes to Brown. He goes to, he's an Ivy Leaguer. He's, like, I believe the first black player to play in the Rose Bowl. I mean, Pollard is fucking super interesting. You've got, in the NBA, you've got, so Masai Ujiri, um, who is, in the minds of a lot of people, like the probably the sharpest executive in the league, African American, is with the Raptors now, built their championship team last year. He is so in demand that there's like, you know, there were rumors that like teams were just gonna like aggressively just throw all sorts of money at at Masai, a guy named Masai Ujiri, uh, to come in and save their franchise. The Knicks being most notable. It's inconceivable, like in the modern NFL. Could you imagine somebody named like Masai Ujiri being? A top executive, and it's and and it's not conceivable because of the environment that. How about Ozzie Newsom, who was the best general manager in the league for two decades, and is is now viewed as just a non-entity. It's, and he's a Hall of Fame player, right? And he's like uh, the Browns, and then the, the Browns become the the first Browns become the Ravens, and he. It's amazing um, to have that sort of like sustained. To excel in that job, Newsom, for as long as he did, I mean, who who have we seen watching the draft? Okay, where they're going into every you see every you see the owners and you see uh, front office guys. As far as like African American front office guys, Cleveland, Dolphins, Dolphins coach and and, GM. and the GM too. I I, I the Gr- Browns uh, Greer Greer and the, and the Browns uh, GM also, but like it's. Who they, got, who they just hired this year? They just hired this year, and are two of the worst jobs in the NFL for a, <laughs> for, for, sure. for a general manager. For sure, the draft, and it's been we've talked about the the high notes and the low notes, and one of the low notes for me is has been that we're in the living rooms of black amateurs that have like made universities yep. like ungodly sums of money. Look at all the SEC players that have been taken that just fill these like hundred thousand seat stadiums, you know, on Saturdays in the fall and winter, and. It's you go from the living room of the black player to the living room of the overwhelmingly white, rich executive. Th- that sort of dynamic, that picture has that has to change. That has to be, that needs to be reconciled. No, I think you mentioned something uh, about the Rooney Rule in front office. I mean, they have they have expanded it very slightly into uh, executive office, but not necessarily in positions of of power like a GM or a president. You know, Dad, you, you mentioned the commissioner stepping in. And in the NFL, I mean, one of the reasons why, to me, that seems so, you know, unlikely to happen is because the commissioner is hired, fired by 30 owners. All 30 owners, white billionaires, many of them, you know, supported our current president in his race, donated to him, were open about it. If you look at the power players in the in the that are owners, you know, you look at the Bob Crafts, the Jerry Joneses, the Rooneys, you know, all these guys that they are willing to go out and openly support our current president. The odds of them being willing enough to hire African-American GMs and African-American coaches seems to be a, a linear uh, relationship that is not going up. You know, a lot of NFL uh, watchers say that, that 
the people that the owners want to hire for GMs or presidents are people they want to have breakfast with. Well, they want to have breakfast with white people. They want to have breakfast served by black people, which is why they're completely willing to have a 70% league where the life expectancy is under 60 and everyone ends up with brain injuries because of the, the nature of the game. The NFL Players Association is, is what has to step up. But the problem with the NFL Players Association, the NFL career is almost always over except for quarterbacks and kickers by the age of 31. The number of people who get involved in union work from the rank and file are almost always over 31. I became a building rep when I was 33. I was by far the youngest person in the room. I am now the president of an organization, the same organization, where I have actively recruited younger people. I would still have been the youngest person in the room at 33. Like, we have some people in their 30s, but they're the late 30s. It's just the nature of having the time to do the work. And the NFL Players Association, I do not believe pays their building rep. Uh, I mean, their team reps. Uh, Dominic Foxworth said that it was it was a full-time job that he wasn't paid for at all. And that's something that has to happen because it has to come from the players who say, in our next collective bargaining agreement, you're going to agree to hire three former players or whatever at, an, at any given time. And okay, that may marginalize them, but it may not. The analytics movement has turned everything into Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley, as we know, is the racist epicenter of the world. But one of the problems with that is, is you're right. Nobody plays past 31 unless you're a kicker or, or a QB. Mm. Uh, rarely you see like a guy like Frank Gore. You know, you see a guy like Peterson. You know, it, it, it's rare. But also, if you look at it, like those are two positions that are both overwhelmingly white. Yeah, quarter, I don't think that's an accident. Quarterbacks, yeah. quarterbacks are about eighty-two percent white. Kickers, I'd be surprised if they're under ninety-eight. And I think like that is one of the things that can be problematic when you look at if you have an ownership that's mostly white and a leadership that's mostly white in a league that's mostly black. How often are those issues rising to the forefront? You know, I mean, listen, unions pay pension, healthcare team sends. Is, is, is what I preach to my members. That's what we care about. But there are also things, especially in the NFL, where it's just like equity. Like, just there has to be some push for equity. The vast majority of players in the NFL never qualify for a pension. Yeah. And so if you pay, say pay pension and health care is their issue, most players do not qualify for the health care they need later on yep. in life from playing the game or a pension. Or so if they do, it, they have to have a lawsuit. It's been a failure which is, by the way, when I heard our first conversation, you kept talking about nationalizing the NFL. I still think we should nationalize the NFL. <laughs> well, no, the, Good luck. The, the, the United States government's not taking on the inevitable lawsuits over all the CTEs. Like, that's not going to happen. And so, and by the way, we don't want it to happen. Private industry got us into this. Private industry should get us out of this. I don't mean to, I, I don't mean to you know, backtrack or sort of... I, you mentioned Ed before um, the line about in the hiring process, you're, you executives look to hire somebody that they would they'd want to have breakfast with. I find it curious that, for example, uh, Jerry Richardson, the, since the former owner of the Carolina Panthers, who in his last run as their owner, he's got a black starting quarterback, Cam Newton. 
He's got a minority head coach, Ron Rivera. And he's, to some people in the public sphere, is, is, is kind of championed as like, you know, oh, well, this, is, this is diversity in the NFL workplace. You know, minority head coach, black quarterback. Well, his, what leads to his ultimate removal or like displacement as owner of the Panthers is anonymous minority Panthers players citing racial incidents in the team structure which he ends up get, getting fined seven figures for, and he's ultimately run from. He's, he's no longer the owner. New owner comes in, new front office. They Rivera gets fired. Newton is, is done. In the hiring process of their new head coach, Rivera's replacement, Matt Rule, former Baylor coach, a quote that encapsulates like that idea of, well, we wanted to hire a guy. I hired a guy that like, reminds me of myself. And what, and what was that? It's like Matt Rule. And if you know Matt Rule, he's, he's white, a little overweight. He's a football guy. That right there, that transition from Richardson to this new group, their new management, that so, to me, is, is such a portrait of, like, the problem. And, 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 and the fact that, like, their, their transition, like, still reflects, like, the worst of the values. Maybe it's a generational thing. You know, we're Jets fans. I don't think there's anyone in the NFL I'd want to have breakfast with less than Adam Gase. Fuck no. <laughs> like the the guy is a psychopath. I don't I don't want to have breakfast. He, if, you, he, if you if you fucked up his omelet, like that poor waitress, she's gonna get torn up, and then she's gonna get a two dollar tip. And she's, yeah, she's gonna have to watch film of how to make an omelet. Or yeah, something. exactly. <laughs> the problem is we are taking the most corporate sports league and asking them to take. A step that is actually progressive, or not even progressive, that's actually moderate given this time. But the NFL is by far the most corporate of of leagues because it's the most profitable. They find no reason not to be. And because the Players Association is weak, they find they're never forced to. So ultimately, you know, and I, I think I always end up on this podcast at this point that sports requires a certain moral relativism and it's like well it could be worse i don't know how the nfl the nfl could be worse if it was the ncaa and by the way we were talking about how great the draft was why is there a draft like why why don't players get to just go where they want to go lawyers don't have this issue you graduate from harvard law you don't suddenly end up in in topeka uh, at some law firm because they drafted you number one because they were a poor law firm last year. Like it, it, nobody else would put up with this, and I don't think it even helps competitive balance because ultimately teams who don't know what they're doing have more open spots than teams that do. Majority again, and you look at the football and basketball, namely, it's a, a huge, vast majority of young black adults entering the workforce with no say in where they go where they're where where they're going to be employed and you and it's funny that you look at like sort of examples of players that like sort of dictate that were able to manipulate and dictate where they end up playing two notable examples john elway eli manning are they black of course they're not they're white quarterbacks not a coincidence the only say that players have is to hold out or to not sign and we talked about it in our earlier episode the nfl cba one of the things that the NFL got was it made it much harder for these drafted guys to then hold out because if they hold out, they then lose their entire year's pay. So they're baking it the system where like they have to go there or they lose a year. 
and it, it it is something that is just so tilted towards management. Do you think I like I am pretty convinced that there's there's just too much management, and all of these management positions are largely held by white guys, and there's just too there's too much. There's too many of too many white men working in management positions, and there's too many management positions to begin with. Um, in across across sports, that, that's, so, that's, a, that's a problem in most of America. There's yeah. too many white guys in management. Sports, yeah, white white, white guys in middle management is America. <laughs> um, if we had to do it perfectly, what would you recommend? And, and I guess since I threw the question out, I'll start. I would recommend that I think the Rooney Rule went. I mean, it it dabbled in quotaism. But if you're going to dabble in it, go into it. That 30% of all positions should be held by former players. That would make, if you do the math correctly, 21% of all offices African-American. If, if if they did a proportional thing. And if they didn't do a proportional, you know, I mean, if, if Adam Venateri is your, is your tight ends coach, like, you know, you have an issue. But 30% of all of all positions should be held by minority players at the very least. I would argue it should be 70% because that's the number of players that you have. But there should be a quota that you can't hire. You're not allowed to, to try this. Maybe even if you did, you're not allowed to hire three white coaches in a row. Or you're not allowed to hire three white GMs in a row. Because you know what? If you've had to hire three white GMs in five years, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. So maybe you should try something different because you clearly don't know what you're doing. You know, you don't know what you're doing, Mark Davis, because you keep not making the playoffs. So Mark Davis, you have to hire somebody you don't want to hire because who you want to hire inevitably sucks. Mark Davis, the only owner in the NFL who would spend a billion dollars to move his team to a town that is no longer open. <laughs> right. right. And also, who goes to Supercuts and tells him ahead of time he's not tipping. Hey, you don't you don't get a billionaire by you don't become a billionaire by getting haircuts that aren't from your own kitchen. I think the percentage of, of minority positions in, in front offices, I think, is a is a good start. Another good area to, to bring more equity would be if you know, if the NFL is not going to do it, then the player union should do it. A kind of executive management training or that they will pay to fund your classes to get a degree in, in, in management or executive, you know, to go to business school to get that. The union will pay for that, uh, some kind of training program. I also think one of the things that could make this a lot more equitable of a situation, even from the beginning, is right now you have, what, 32 teams in the NFL. You have... 31 white owners and one uh, owner of color in Tony Khan. They are the ones who decide on the suit and the commissioner. I think a way to alleviate some of just the gross, the overt uh, racism that that would inherit is, is give the players a say in hiring a commissioner. I mean, this is the guy that is going to be deciding a lot of their fates. I think that if you give the players a vote and a chunk of a vote in making more of a 50-50 split or even a 55-45 split that you can have a commissioner that is more representative of the league itself, that we wouldn't have a Goodell. We might have a Tony Dungy or a Jim Caldwell that giving the players more of a voice allows them to have a say over, you know, who is essentially the ruler of the league. I don't know nor have, like, the answer, 
but in an attempt to try and talk through us, you know, try to get to a idea of a solution, like in watching the draft, to me, the sharpest guy on there, on the whole panel between ESPN, NFL Network, whatever, uh, would be uh, Riddick. Lance, uh, I don't know oh, his name. yeah, uh, um, Lewis Riddick. Lewis Riddick. Lewis yeah. Riddick. Excuse me. Who's really smart? Who's really, really smart, and has has been employed as a scout as in middle management uh, on NFL teams. He's been employed in a million jobs, and he was like he was courted. I I forget the team, but he's been courted for jobs, whatever. And I look at I look at him, and I look at it. He's on TV now, and I look at uh, you mentioned the Grudens in, in Oakland, and Gruden's boss, Mike Mayock, is their GM. Mike Mayock has been working. At the NFL Network, he's been there sort of Mel before he got the Raiders job. He's the he's the Mel Kiper of the NFL Network. Well, Kiper's the ESPN. Mayock is the NFL Network, and Mayock gets this job at Oakland, and he runs the front office. And I don't know. You watch the Raiders draft, and not great, not great. I wish that the sort of complexion of like the league's televised, like the studio shows, the talk shows, the Talking Heads. I just wish front offices would reflect more what the TV like. You see, like prominent former black players, like on TV and studio shows and, and whatnot. There needs to be a way. And you mentioned sort of like incentivizing, like you know, going for grad degrees and stuff. Like you know, why can't Randy Moss get the fuck off Monday Night Countdown and run a team? Why is he less qualified than Mike Mayock to do that? You know, I, I think you're right. And, and one of the best things about the uh, NFL recently is that the increased diversity in media coverage. You know, you mentioned Lewis Riddick, but also Dominique Foxworth and Ryan Clark, and there's a number, uh, Mina Kimes, a number of people who have come out of, you know, it's not just white coaches who got fired. You know, like, why is Steve Mariucci still talking about the NFL? Like, what does Steve Mariucci know about the NFL now? He knew nothing when he was coaching. Clearly, he knows nothing now. Like, he's not gotten better at this. I do think that that is where, but that's where the pressure has to come from. The pressure has to come from people with a platform speaking up. And you know who taught them about that? Jamil Hill, because she got fired for doing that. Here, here. And. You know, look at the NFL players that stood up and got fired. I missed yeah, you. Colin Kaepernick, and you know, I mean, that's the problem: is that the cost for being right is so much greater than the cost for being wrong. Until the NFL collapses on itself, which it, at some point will, it, inevitably it will, because you have a, a sport that a whole bunch of people refuse to play. But you know. Boxing was in its death throes forever, and now it's really in its death throes, and it's still kind of popular. Like, so I don't know when that ends. Um, and I think that's you know, that's kind of my last comment. Like, I don't see where I, I don't. You can't force the NFL to do the right thing because all the financial incentives are in them doing the wrong thing. Well, I think it's. I think that's that's a good point because you mentioned that last week when we were talking about Augusta and we were talking about solutions for that is waiting for these multi-billion-dollar corporations to do the right thing to bring progressive change just isn't going to happen. And I'm a big fan of the inside-outside strategy of making change that you have people on the inside working, making it happen from the inside. The the players, the uh, owners, the coaches, you know, the Rooney Rule itself, and, and to some degree, 
but you also need the outside pressure. And I think that's where like the Fritz Pollard advocacy comes in that the only way we're going to make this change and, and to make anything even just, and, and it's not like saying, Oh, every coach should be black. It's just saying there should be equity. Like the, Asking for equity is not taking away from anyone. It's just bringing equity. When when you look at Cliff Kingsbury, who you mentioned earlier, and who I actually like, yeah, Cliff Kingsbury failed as a college coach. He failed as a college coach. Yep. He was under five hundred with Texas Tech. He took over the Arizona Cardinals. Jim Caldwell is also available. Caldwell has made the playoffs twice with teams who have not made the playoffs since he left them. I don't really get that other than race and stubble somehow equal talent in the NFL. You referenced Schwartz earlier, and all I could think of was like, look at his predecessors. You know, it's funny, you mentioned Mariucci. Mariucci's a predecessor. Marty Morninweg, uh, Jim Schwartz, all just colossal failures in Detroit. Caldwell comes in, they go to the playoffs. He's gone. Who's here now? Matt Patricia. They've had two years of absolute futility. What does that say? What does that say? Shockingly, a, a guy whose defense gave up, what, 48 points? What was the Super Bowl that he gave up? It was like 48 points? Like He gave up a massive number of points, and the defense immediately got better when he left it. Like immediately, the day he left it, it got better. It's like my life and your mother. It got better. <laughs> better when she left it <laughs> and <So>. Jesus. <laughs> she's not a listener i guess on that yeah, completely inappropriate no we'll end this um next week we're going to talk about if you thought the masters was racist wait till we get to the kentucky derby which combines racism animal cruelty and white power in a way that only 50-bit juleps will allow you to accept so uh We'll be talking about that next week. And until then, we are the Bill Bradley Collective. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Bradley Collective. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe. We'll see you all next week.